The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Medicine in Motion, Smarter Approaches for Diagnosing Homozygous Familial Hypercholesterolemia. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash BPX860. Downloadable practice aids are also available. Hello, this is uh, Seth Martin from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Welcome to this visual tour of HOFH diagnosis. Today you'll learn about the formal diagnostic criteria for this rare disease and hear from some of my patients who've struggled to get the right diagnosis. So heterozygous FH is having one gene inherited from a parent. The LDL levels are typically above 190 milligrams per deciliter. Coronary heart disease usually has an onset in age 30 to 60, and most patients respond well to drug therapy. There can be some blunted response, but there's generally a good response to traditional therapies. And overall, as noted, uh, this is common, one in about 250 people on average in the general population. Homozygous FH, our focus, is much more rare um, so this, in contrast to heterozygous FH, you have two genes, one in, inherited from each parent, and the LDL levels are much higher, over 400 milligrams per deciliter. The, uh, because of this extreme exposure to LDL levels, there can be onset of coronary heart disease in childhood. The response to drug therapy can be much worse because of the deficiency of active LDL receptors. And Overall, the uh, rarity of this condition um, is one in 300,000 people. This educational activity is intended to sound alarm. This is a call to action since early diagnosis and prompt initiation of lipid-lowering therapy are paramount. Clearly, there's a need for heightened awareness throughout the healthcare system to ensure that these patients with HOFH and their families receive timely diagnosis and treatment, especially since some of the consequences of delayed diagnosis can lead to accelerated atherosclerosis, typically affecting coronary arteries and the aortic root early in life within that first decade, um, and other vascular territories can be affected. First major CV events often occur during adolescence, possibly even younger when patients are LDL receptor negative and untreated. So clearly it's critical uh, to look early because of the early onset of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So children from families who've had early atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or known FH um, really should be aggressively screened for homozygous FH. Screening should begin at age two, according to the guidelines. This is in contrast to general cholesterol screening recommendations where the uh, recommendations are to start at age 9 to 11 and again at age 17 to 21 in children and adolescents. Clearly, that's not going to work when we're dealing with FH and need to make a diagnosis earlier. So again, the recommendation is to start at age 2 in children coming from families where you have concern. And then it would be unfortunate um, to be making a diagnosis at that uh, older um age in children and adolescents, and particularly unfortunate to be making a diagnosis ever age 20, which is where the universal cholesterol, cholesterol screening guidelines start at age 20 or more, and then every five years, 
for individuals who are at lower risk of ASCVD and uh, more frequently if risk factors are present, such as a family history. But again, this is not going to work for HOFH. We need to be starting at age two, making the diagnosis early and getting treatment initiated, uh, in treatment initiated early. So now you know more about the epidemiology of heterozygous and homozygous FH. Many patients with both types of FH struggle to obtain an accurate diagnosis. So what barriers do they face? How can we as healthcare professionals help reduce those barriers? Let's hear the personal experiences from two of my patients to learn more about how they receive their diagnosis of HOFH and the impact that it's had on them and their families. Hello, my name is Patricia Young, and I was diagnosed with HOFH approximately around the age of five. The reason why um, my parents took me to the hospital because I had massive xanthomas on both my knees, both my elbows, and my Achilles, and a small bump under my lip. Um, the, the, uh, bumps looked like keloids and they were starting to get bigger and bigger. And one day I fell on my knees and they hurt. And so the first doctor, of course, thought they were keloids until I ended up, uh, in the hospital later where a doctor actually told me what they were. So... It was like, I don't think my blood was actually tested thoroughly until I was about 12 years old. As a child, my cholesterol level was around and a little bit above a thousand, the total cholesterol. Well, early on, one of my greatest concerns was, uh, of course, dying from it because once I was mature enough to start reading up on it, um, and actually it wasn't actually until I got pregnant that I actually really started reading up into it when I was about 25. And I read that I had a rare condition and that my condition, uh, patients usually did not live beyond their 30s. So Patricia is thought to be one of the oldest persons in the country, in the world with HOFH. And to hear more about her courageous journey with HOFH, please visit the Family Heart Foundation's website. In many ways, Patricia has been a, a pioneer in the diagnosis and management of, of HOFH. She's lived through the history of advancement of science um, in HOFH. So let's hear how lessons learned from patients like Patricia have benefited younger patients and to better understand how far we still have to go to best serve our patients with HOFH. Uh, my name is Brandy. I am 38 and I was diagnosed about five years ago. My cholesterol was actually checked just as some routine lab work that was done by my primary care physician. There was no real reason why it was checked the first time. Um, and then when the results came back and they were extremely elevated, they asked me if it was a joke, if I had gone out, you know, for eggs and bacon for breakfast that morning. 
um, and they repeated it and then it came back high again. Um, initially I was still blown off for a little bit until my uncle died of 35 at a heart attack and I live in a small town so when I saw my doctor next they asked me how I was related to that person and that's kind of what led me to my first cardiologist um, and getting on some of my first statins and I moved across the country multiple times and was with different providers having different cocktails of statins and nothing was really getting me into a safe range and then I moved here to Maryland and was seeing a great doctor and um, he recommended that I go to the lipid clinic up in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins and that's ultimately where I finally was correctly diagnosed with this disorder. So I was around 33 when I did receive my diagnosis um, and when I shared my family history with Dr. Martin, um, you know, of my uncle passing at 35, my grandfather having his first heart attack in his 30s as well, and uh, subsequent ones after that, a couple bypass surgeries, uh, massive stroke. I, by that time, had experienced my own TIA as well. Um, and all of that definitely in conjunction with my numbers um, led to really immediate treatment and testing to confirm what he suspected as my diagnosis. I would say for the most part, I've tried not to really let it significantly impact things because it can really get you in a down dark place if you're thinking about this nonstop and that, you know, every time you're having a feeling in your chest, you're worried that it's, you know, a heart attack because of your high cholesterol or things like that. So all of the treatments, the appointments, whatever, they're just kind of on my calendar as part of my to-do list of things. And then I just keep, you know, moving forward with my regular everyday life. I mean, of course, I'm mindful of, you know, making sure I'm moving and exercising and, you know, being mindful about what I'm eating. Um, but ultimately, I try not to let it have a huge impact on my daily life. So there are a number of barriers to diagnosis of HOFH leading to it being missed or delayed. And so these are patient, there are patient level barriers, there are clinician level barriers, starting with patient level barriers, there's changing guidelines, there's care gaps, there's suboptimal or non-disclosure of family history. There's high costs of FH genetic testing, although that's improved over time and often this is very affordable for our patients. And there's concerns about privacy and discrimination where a genetic counselor can be very helpful at discussing that with patients and, and often providing reassurance. On the clinician level, there's lack of sufficient evidence to support methods of identification and treatment. There's suboptimal time for assessing family history during rushed clinic visits in our busy healthcare system. There's lack of optimized diagnostic criteria for FH patient identification and EHRs, although this is getting better and better each year um, due to pioneering efforts uh, such as those of the FH Foundation. And there's perception of FH genetic testing as outside of the scope of medical practice. And this is where our partnership with genetic counselors can be really transformative. And then there's the lack of awareness of FH, that it's, it's hidden, 
because we're not thinking about it, looking for it, um, it in, in broad medical practice. So there's very simple factors that can prompt further investigation for FH and can be game-changing, can be life-changing for a patient and their family. Elevated LDL levels simply assessed from a standard lipid profile, personal family, uh, personal or family history of early onset cardiac events can, uh, together with LDL levels, as we'll see in the HA diagnostic criteria, be absolutely critical. And then there's physical exam findings. When we see our patients in clinic and we look in their eyes and we see corneal arcus, and we'll show some pictures of that, as well as see tendon or feel tendon xanthomas, these are really um, common in HFH and can be part of the clinical picture um, that leads to the, to the making the diagnosis. And so here we see in Patricia's eyes, this light ring around the eyes, the arcus corneae or corneal arcus uh, can be seen with simple examination of the eyes. What I've always had is the light round arcus around my eye. It's, it looks like, um, some people used to think I had, my eyes were two colors. And some people thought I had cataract. But since I was a child, I've always had the light ring in my eye, which is of course a sign of plaque buildup in the arteries of my eye. So um, that's one of the signs that I, I had and I still have. I asked my patients to make fists, and you can appreciate these xanthomas in the extensor tendons of the hands. In Patricia's case, she also has xanthomas of the knees uh, in the extensor tendons there that are quite evident with the knee bent. The xanthomas had a serious psychological effect on me as a child, mainly because I was teased. People were told not to sit next to me. They didn't know what it was. It was hard for me to explain as a child why I had it. Um, and even though I would just tell people they were keloids, it was hard to explain because a lot of people didn't understand, even my parents. They removed the xanthomas from my knees, my elbows, and my Achilles. And once they were removed, the scar healed. People accepted a scar. I was no longer teased. I felt like I was more normal. And then thickening of those Achilles tendons, which is a really great place to look on physical exam of a patient with HOFH, where you appreciate this, the, the, the thickening of the tendon, and it can even be bulging out from the tendon. In Patricia's case, she's been treated with cholesterol therapy, for decades, and it's not as evident as it may be when making a new diagnosis in someone who's untreated. So I don't have any obvious symptoms to myself, but when I was seen by Dr. Martin, he uh, I remember him measuring my Achilles tendons, the thickness of them, and he said, boy, those are really thick. And I mean, I don't go around measuring other people's Achilles tendons, so I would never know that mine were thickened in comparison to anybody else. Um, so physically, that was one of my um, one of the signs that I had, but I just I wasn't even aware. Uh, so here we have emerging data from the Cascade FH registry. Uh, this analysis includes 67 HOFH patients, including 
16 children and 51 uh, adults who were enrolled at participating sites across the U.S. in this registry run by the Family Heart Foundation. And so we see, even at a very early age in children uh, with an age of onset around nine years, we're seeing aortic valve stenosis and coronary artery disease. Of course, these conditions are more prevalent in adults, but even at this early age in children, we're seeing uh, these conditions um, in the first decade of life. Untreated baseline LDL levels, of course, were severely elevated in both children and adults in levels consistent with what we had discussed previously, well above 400 milligrams per deciliter. Interestingly, physical exam findings, corneal arcus is something that can take longer to develop. So in children, this was not uh, observed, whereas in adults, this was present in about half of adults um, around an age of, uh, of average age of around 30. And tendon xanthomas were present in more than half of the children in the first decade of life and 80% of adults. So tendon xanthomas are clearly something we need to be aggressively looking for in clinic. And then in terms of family history, cardiovascular disease was present in about a third of children and about 84% of adults um, who were diagnosed with HOFH. Uh, whereas a family history of familial hypercholesterolemia or or hypercholesterolemia was as expected present in basically 100% uh, of HOFH patients' families. So these are really interesting data that are consistent um, with the need for uh, a really aggressive uh, efforts to identify HOFH early in life in children. So... um, Here we see the clinical criteria for diagnosing HOFH from the American Heart Association 2015 document led by Dr. Gidding. This is still the preferred criteria. As you'll notice, um, the LDL threshold is 400 or more together with at least one parent being uh, clinically diagnosed with FH. Um, That um, or having positive genetic testing for LDL raising uh, gene effects or autosomal recessive FH. Um, If you've had one parent diagnosed, it's certainly very possible that the other parent has not uh, been diagnosed with FH because we know in general, our health system is not um, doing a great job at finding FH. Um, But it's that LDL threshold of 400 together with at least one parent having the, the diagnosis or the genetic findings or autosomal recessive FH. If the LDL level is above 560, um, that uh, is really even more clearly um, on a clinical grounds, pushing someone to the HOFH category because we just don't uh, tend to see someone with heterozygous FH have an LDL level get that high. Um, Or if the LDL is above 400, but there's aortic disease, or xanthomas at an early age, that really points to HOFH. These are the clinical criteria. Patients can also have genetically proven HOFH when there's two identical uh, gene mutations causing FH, and we'll get more into that, or non-identical mutations, which we call compound heterozygous FH, but clinically we still refer to that as HOFH, um, where you have those non-identical LDL uh, raising gene defects. Um, 
And then occasionally HOFH patients with less severe mutations could have LDL levels below 400, but you still can make the genetic diagnosis um, when you find those two mutations. Screening for elevated LPA levels, lipoprotein A levels, is strongly encouraged given its high prevalence among patients with HOFH and its significant association with ASCVD uh, on top of LDL. I wanted to draw a quick contrast between these AHA criteria for HOFH with these other diagnostic criteria that are commonly used, which are really focused on heterozygous FH. And those are the US MedPed criteria, the Dutch criteria, the British Simon Bruin criteria. These criteria are quite clinically useful, but really are focused on heterozygous FH, whereas these AHA 2015 criteria are really the um, relevant ones for HOFH. So let's take a look at the different thresholds to better understand LDL levels that we see uh, in patients with clinical diagnoses of HOFH. So here on the y-axis, we have LDL levels, and we see in the setting of a common hypercholesterolemia, we're talking about levels in the range of around 130 to 190. And then in the setting of heterozygous FH, those levels can go upwards of around 500. That would be quite a severe phenotype for heterozygous FH. Often we're seeing heterozygous FH levels in the two and three hundreds. And then homozygous FH, again, our focus, um, we're talking about eight, typically based on those HA criteria and based on the typical clinical phenotype of levels 400 milligrams per deciliter or, or more. Often we see levels, as you'll see with my patients, that could start baseline levels around 600 or even upwards towards 1,000. So the levels can be, are just more severe than we see with heterozygous FH or common hypercholesterolemias. And so the molecular etiology here for HOFH in its very classic form is having defects in the LDL receptor. So the LDL receptor can have null mutations, meaning that there's no activity of the LDL receptor, or there can be defects that impair the LDL receptor so we don't have um, full use, but there's still partial uh, receptor activity. Um, and those would um, lead to a less severe phenotype. And then there's compound heterozygous FH where you have different types of mutations inherited from each parent. Um, the ultimate risk for coronary artery disease is highest in HOFH. Again, it can happen early in life in childhood which is why making an early diagnosis is so critical, there can be some modification of the ultimate coronary artery disease risk based on someone's genetic background if there's additional variants that are pathogenic versus protective genetic variation. Um, but really, in simple terms, HOFH is a condition where we should be paying very careful attention at an early age to coronary artery disease risk. And so... LDL receptor mutations make up the bulk of mutations uh, for HOFH. However, patients can also have defects in apolipoprotein B, which is the protein that facilitates binding of LDL, of LDL molecules to the LDL receptor. And then there's PCSK9, 
which is an enzyme which facilitates the degradation of LDL receptors. And then rarely there's um, autosomal recessive mutations in LDL wrap. Um, so genetic confirmation of two mutant alleles in these genes is diagnostic for HOFH. HOFH is a family affair. One of the greatest privileges as a physician is to take care of families with a FH, both parents and, and children, multiple generations of a family. So case identification um, starts with um, finding a possible proband, and this could happen at a healthcare visit because we tested LDL and we reviewed the family history and we performed the physical exam. Um, it also can happen just at a general li lipid screening at an employee health event or, or a community event um, where there, a very high LDL is detected and then the person's connected with additional uh, care. And then increasingly in the setting of electronic health records, we're using database searching to have triggers that lead to alert patients and clinicians to the possibility of FH. The diagnosis is confirmed through repeated lipid testing, ruling out secondary causes of high uh, lipids, uh, genetic testing or genotyping, a careful review of the family history. We saw how important that was in the AHA criteria and the physical examination, looking for physical exam signs like corneal arcus and xanthomas. All of this leads to making a clinical or genetic diagnosis and identifying a proband who then can serve as the starting point for cascade testing. So after diagnosing the index patient with HOFH, we as clinicians can initiate cascade screening, starting with affected first-degree relatives such as parents, siblings, or children. Um, if affected parents are found, which is what we fully expect in the setting of HOFH, um, then as many relatives as possible on that parent side of the family should be screened as we're expecting that both parents have heterozygous FH because each was expected to pass one gene to uh, the child. Children of the affected parents' siblings should also be screened. Treatment in childhood is indicated for those who are affected. Each new FH case found then becomes a pro-brand for broader cascading. And cascade screening can be done with cholesterol testing, or genetic analysis, it's really about the possibility of a clinical diagnosis or genetic analysis. But if that genetic analysis is available within a family, that's really the preferred route to then identify that ex the exact mutant gene or genes in individuals in that family. And then of course, this is genetic. So you worry about passing this on to your child that can then be experiencing, you know, some of the same things. And even in exploring things like egg freezing and stuff like that, there are additional components I need to take into consideration uh, because of the history of TIA as a result of my diagnosis, being on high dosages of hormones that are required for that process, you know, is also risky for me. So it's definitely something that I think about when I think about starting a family, but it's not a make or break um, part of that decision for me. So here we have a representative family pedigree. So we have two parents, each with heterozygous FH, as shown by these two, each one having one mutant allele and one normal allele. 
So in that case, there's a 50% chance for each parent to pass on an FH-causing allele. So in their four children, we see that one child got a normal allele from each parent. Two of the children each inherited one mutant allele, so they have heterozygous FH. In contrast, the one child shown on the right has inherited a mutant allele from each parent. So that's how we get to homozygous FH, where we have each parent passing on a mutant allele to the child who now has homozygous FH. And then if we were to further test children uh, in that homozygous FH person, then there would be the 100% probability of them passing on a mutant allele to that child. And then the ultimate phenotype would depend on um, the uh, spouse of that HOFH patient. But once the mutant alleles are specifically identified at a genetic level, and that's known in a the family, then the, that um, directed genetic testing can be used for every future generation of a family as we go through uh, more and more cascade um, uh, test, cascade testing uh, within all the first degree relatives. So let's hear how HOFH diagnosis has impacted the lives of our patients and their loved ones. My parents had six children. I'm the second born. And of my, my oldest sibling, no one had any signs of xanthomas or any problem. But back then, everybody wasn't tested. Just because I had it, no one was tested. So there was no genetic test or anything like that done. So I was pretty much singled out as the family member that had the problem. So um, the Family Heart Foundation Care Navigation Center guides and supports our patients through every step of the journey from screening to diagnosis to finding a specialist using the interactive find a specialist map to then goal setting and understanding the various treatment options helping support access and affordability of treatment. The FH Foundation really can be a great advocate and support with it overcoming insurance barriers, and then can provide support to patients in terms of adhering to treatment, family screening, and life changes as our HOFH patients make those changes together with their family, but also with other patients who they're connected to through the peer support of the FH Foundation. I think it's really important, especially when children are diagnosed as homozygous and they have the xanthomas and they're having all these problems and they got to go to the hospital and have all this blood work. I think it's very important that they receive proper counseling because it was emotional, very emotional for me as a child, especially when in the very beginning, a lot of things were not explained to me. And I was told a lot of things weren't explained to me because someone felt I wasn't old enough to understand it or to comprehend, or the news was so bad that they didn't want to upset me. But I think once a child is diagnosed, there are ways to educate a child to understand what they have. The most important thing is you seriously have to be a self-advocate for yourself. 
There's nothing more important than becoming a self-advocate for yourself when you're dealing with this rare disorder. You can refer doctors and patients to the FH Foundation, which is a place where any and everything you need to know about FH. They have information for people in the medical field, for physicians, and they have information for patients and for caretakers of patients with HOFH. So I think it's very important that you stay on top of it. Um, and I mean, there could be a positive outcome because one thing I want everybody to realize, I'm about to turn 68. I've gone through a lot of treatments. I've had surgery. I've been on every medicine ever <laughs> they have ever made for high cholesterol. And I'm told I'm the oldest living person right now on record that has HOFH. So do yourself a favor and be an advocate for yourself. So let's go through some key takeaways. Many patients with HOFH struggle to receive a timely diagnosis. In families with known FH or with early atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, screening needs to start by age two. ASCVD begins in childhood in that first decade of life. And so earlier, the earlier individuals with HOFH are diagnosed, the earlier effective treatment can be initiated. Left untreated, unfortunately, most patients with HOFH develop overt atherosclerosis before age 20 and are unlikely to survive past 30 years. So this is a call to action since early diagnosis and prompt initiation of evidence-based lipid-lowering therapy, these are really paramount. And using available resources, we can improve outcomes for patients and families living with HOFH. Uh, the resources in particular from the Family Heart Foundation are really fantastic. So this ends our discussion for today. I hope you found the activity interesting and useful to your practice, and I encourage you to participate in the companion module on HOFH treatment. Thank you very much for joining me. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and Family Heart Foundation. Remember to download the practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash BPX860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.